Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. Today we're speaking with author Nikki Grimes, winner of a myriad of awards. Hi. We're so excited to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you. So in one last word, you use a method called the golden shovel to write your poems based on the Harlem Renaissance. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your ties to the Harlem Renaissance? Well, I was born in Harlem, Harlem Hospital to be exact, Um, and did my first, gave my first poetry reading at County Cullen Library in Harlem, which is a block away. Uh, So I came into the world uh, surrounded, in spirit at least, by the poets of the Harlem Renaissance. So I've always felt connected to that period and to those poets, and uh, that I would eventually explore some of my favorite poetry from that period is no surprise. But the Golden Shovel offered me a unique opportunity to explore my favorite poets and explore these poems in a very different way than they'd ever been done before. You are so prolific and your your work spans so many different genres, you know, between poetry and middle grade and YA and novels and, and essentially picture books. Do you have a preferred genre or do you like just going with whatever feels right at the moment? Hands down, poetry is my favorite genre. Uh, I approach it in, in a variety of ways, so I don't feel locked in to one form or another. I really like to explore. I like to stretch myself uh, as an artist. Um, but every genre serves me in a different way, and so I, I go with what seems organic for the particular project I'm working on. Sometimes I'll start out thinking it's going to be a work in prose, and as I'm working, I realize that it wants to be a work in poetry uh, instead. And sometimes the reverse happens. So I follow the work organically uh, in terms of deciding what genre it's going to be. Do you have a favorite genre that you prefer to read? Memoir is probably my favorite overall. And that's in whatever form it takes. Well, memoir is interesting anyway. I mean, it's because it's true in a personal way. But memoir is different from fact. Memory is not truly reliable. I mean, no two people remember the same event in the same way. And uh, ultimately what memoir is about is how um, experiences have impacted you. And so they're true for you. Whether or not they're actually factual is, is a whole other issue. But memoir is not about fact. It's about the experience of of an event and the impact it's had on your life and the way that um, the the various threads are connected uh, in your life because of those memories. I only recently read Bronx Masquerade for the first time and I have to say that I am so amazed at your ability to 
develop these characters who are so perfectly themselves, but to have so many of them. You're portraying the, the interior life of so many different characters, but they're so completely separate. It, is that difficult to manage while you're writing? The, the only difficulty is if I have character, if I have two characters who are similar in a number of ways, and then I have to work to find ways to distinguish them from one another. Aside from that, it's, it's not a problem. But you need to think about it in terms of your own circle, your family, your friends. Um, when someone calls you on the phone, and if it's somebody you know nine out of ten times, they don't even have to say their name. You know who they are because you recognize their voice. Or if you see them in a crowd, you know, walking down the street, you know them well enough that you recognize their cadence, you recognize their walk, even from behind. You know them well. Well, I get to know my characters really well in the same way. And so I don't confuse them with one another. It's, it's easy for me to tell them apart because I know each of them intimately. I know their quirks. I know how they move. I know the different ways that they speak. Um, yeah. So if you think about it in terms of that, it's it's a little less confusing. <laughs> it's not confusing so much as just impressive that you can, that you can manage okay. to create such like people. Well, I just try to climb into the skins of my characters and look at the world through their eyes. And, you know, each one is different. I give each one um, his or her own backstory. Um, so I understand in a given situation how they might act or react uh, based on that, you know, personal history. Um, and I just, I think of them as real people. And so I'm able then to write them as real people. Is this backstory something that you may write out, but doesn't make it in its entirety to the book? Oh, yeah. It's, it isn't necessarily for the reader. It's basically information that helps me to know that character better. And as I said, to understand how he or she is going to react in a given situation that I haven't even imagined yet when I start out. Um, and very, you know, some of that information makes it into the book. A lot of it doesn't. Being a poet yourself, being on the other side, teaching poetry, what is the one thing that you always want to make sure your students learn? The importance of story. Because I, although poetry is my first love, I'm, my poetry is largely narrative, and I'm always thinking about what story I want to tell. In, um, in a collection, the focus is on each individual poem and what that poem is going to be about, what that story is. In the case of a novel in verse, I'm thinking more in terms of a suite of poems that's going to, you know, nail down uh, the arc of a story or a particular relationship between characters in that story. And so I think of it in a broader kind of way. But in each case, story comes first and the poetry is almost the last thing I think about in terms of the actual composing of the poem is not is never where I start out. I start out with the story. What is this going to be about?
what is it that I want to say? Hearing you speak about that, I can definitely see that in your poems. Um, but I also see you play with sounds. You know, poetry is layered. And so, of course, there's, you know, the music of it. There's the lyrical quality of it. There's the movement of it. Um, all of those things are wonderful, important, uh, and important. But I, I feel when you're talking about narrative versus lyrical poetry, mm. um, be, besides, you know, those elements, story is important. Otherwise, you're not, it's not narrative, it's lyrical. I do love how your narrative poetry, especially in um, Planet Middle School, really reflects the movement in the characters, especially the, the basketball fixation. Mm-hmm. Somehow it really captures the particular movement and energy of an athletic person, if Thank that you. makes sense. <laughs> yes, it does. Well, I, you know, I chose a sport that I've actually played. Now, it was millennia ago that I played it, but I do remember um, what it was like. And I was the age of the character um, when I played the game. And so there's still, there's still that memory in my body somewhere that I can call up when I'm writing. I always got forced into that. I'm six feet tall and terrible at sports, but everybody <laughs> tried to make me play. <laughs> of course they did. But the movement is there. Like you still, you're right. You have sort of a muscle memory that doesn't go away, and you can you can think of it, um, even if you weren't any good at it. <laughs> So you have an extremely impressive list of, of poets in one last word that you've you've used the golden shovel on their poems. I particularly love that you included women of the Harlem Renaissance that maybe haven't been as lauded. They are the reason I wrote that book in the first place. But I originally had the idea for this book. It was in order to introduce readers to the women poets of the Harlem Renaissance. And the reason I didn't do a book that was entirely uh, those women is because I knew I wouldn't be able to sell it. I was already doing something that hadn't been done before. I was using a brand new form of poetry. I was creating something that no publisher would be able to compare to anything else in terms of deciding how to handle you know, this kind of book, how to market it, what to do with it. Um, and having all of those things going against me, I figured the last thing I need to do is walk in and say, hey, here's a book about all these women you've never heard of. So I decided instead of doing that, let's have uh, a combination of male authors, that they, poets that they're already familiar with and that are already lauded, and then mix in a few women. And now, thanks to the overwhelming response to this book, I now get to do the book I wanted to in the first place. So I, am, I will be working on, um, I've already started gathering material for it, I'm working on a collection uh, companion to one last word that will be entirely women poets from the Holland. So I'm, I'm excited about that opportunity. done some amazing work and you've been honored 
by two of the top Lifetime Achievement Awards, the Virginia Hamilton and the Wilder. Well, the funniest thing about awards for me, one of the funniest things is the phone calls that that you get with the announcements. I'm particularly thinking of the Coretta Scott King for Bronx Masquerade and mm-hmm. also the Wilder. Um, because I live in California, and, and very often um, the ALA conference at which the announcements are made is somewhere in the east. And so calls usually come in at 5 a.m. <laughs> or some wonderful time like that when I'm dead to the world. And, uh, and as a result, I either miss the call or some other weird thing happens. So in the case of Bronx Masquerade, um, by the time I finally heard the phone ring, it had stopped. So I missed that call altogether and no message was left. Um, And then before I could go back to sleep, the phone rang again. This time I heard it and I picked it up. And um, I believe it was E.B. Lewis. And he was like, oh, isn't it great? And I said, isn't what great? And he's like, our book, what happened to our book? I said, what, what? And he tells me then about how he's won um, the Illustrator Award for talking about Bessie. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm really happy for you, but why are you calling me? (laughs) And then eventually he gets up, it's our book and it's going to be great and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, okay, wonderful. Get off the phone with him. I think I'm going to go back to sleep. And the phone rings again. And this time it's it's a friend. Um, mutual friend of EB's and mine, and she says, isn't it wonderful? Congratulations. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, you mean EB's award? And and she goes quiet for a minute. She says, yes, isn't it great? It's going to be good for both of you. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, what is with people? Get off the phone with her. The phone rings again. This time it's an editor, but it's not the editor. Um, that's connected with talking about Bessie. It's an editor from Penguin, not an editor who I work with either, but it's an editor from Penguin. And she's, oh, isn't it wonderful? Congratulations. <laughs> I'm like, okay, why are you calling me about somebody else's book? Oh, you don't know? I don't know what. Oh, my God. You really don't know. Don't know what. You won. I won what? On <laughs> <laughs> the credit card for, for Bronx Masquerade. That's how I found out. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like having to answer three questions. You it's know. like, who's on first? Yeah. <laughs> it was just, it was crazy. Now, the Wilder was a different kind of story. The Wilder, I don't know if this happens every year or if it was just the year I, that I won it, but... All the other award, awards are uh, the, the calls go out the morning of the announcement. Mm-hmm. The Wilder call went out the day before. And I was out seeing a movie with my movie <laughs> club friends, and it was raining cats, dogs, and people here. And so I was standing um, in the entryway 
I had my cell phone on, which I never do, because I knew people would be calling to say they were stuck in traffic or, you know, whatever. Um, so I was waiting for everybody there, and the phone rings, and I figure it's one of my friends, and instead it's some stranger. Now, mind you, nobody has my cell phone. I give very few people my cell phone number. So I'm wondering, first of all, how this person has my number. And then she says something about, you know, the wilder, and I'm not making any connection here. And she keeps talking long enough for me to figure out what she's, why she's calling and what it is she's telling me. And when I finally understand it, I have nothing to say except, <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Get off the phone. My friends by now are gathered after we get through the whole thing. And, of course, they pass the phone around for each person on the committee, you know, to, to say something to me. I get off the phone, and my friends are looking at me like, what's going on? And they see me, you know, acting bizarrely more than usual. And I'm trying to tell them what happened, explain this phone call. And this one friend says, well, what did they say? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> because once I knew what it was about, my mind went blank. And I just kept saying, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was a great way to find out. <laughs> and then the next morning, I was up early to watch the announcements online. Mm -hmm. And it was fabulous. <laughs> and you were well rested because you had gotten the call. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> now, did you did you skip the movie? Were you able to concentrate or pay attention at all? Like, how could you watch a movie after that? Well, not only a movie, but it was a movie about. Um, <laughs> it was a movie about missionaries. Um, it was a very dark movie uh, <laughs> about missionaries in Japan and, oh. you know, who were mistreated. And it was just a very dark movie. And I would be sitting there in the dark every now and then, and I'd smile. Completely <laughs> <laughs> inappropriate. <laughs> and I'd remind myself, wait a minute, you're watching people being persecuted. Knock that smile off your face. <laughs> but That's you're being funny. honored for a lifetime of work. I mean... Yeah. And smile in whatever movie you're in. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I couldn't wipe the smile off my face, so it was pretty amazing. And what was even more amazing, though, was to um, have dinner with this membership, uh, this committee, and, and hear members discuss my work in, in, in greater detail than than I even could remember myself. I mean, you rarely have an opportunity to be with people who have taken that kind of a deep dive into your work. They gone back and read things that I hardly remember writing. Um, you know, small things, bigger things, mm -hmm. uh, just pieces in magazines. I mean, just they do a very, very deep dive when they, um, in their selection process. And so they were able to discuss with me and, and ask me questions, particular questions about choices that a particular character made, you know, in a, in a book or uh, just different passages that, that stuck out to them. And it, it was a fabulous experience to, to have that, to be able to talk with people who, who knew the work that well, that deeply. 
That's amazing. Pretty great. I'd yeah. imagine that would be pretty surreal just to sit there and listen to that. It was entirely that. surreal. <laughs> <laughs> it was entirely surreal. And it wasn't anything that I ever saw or imagined. I was with Virginia Hamilton when she um, won the Wild, and I remember looking at the medal, and we were just, you know, celebrating. It was just this huge, wonderful thing. And I never in a million years thought that I would have that experience. So it caught me completely off guard. Now, just out of rank curiosity, <laughs> where where is your medal? Because we've talked to some people who have it framed in an office, and we have some people who have actually lost theirs or accidentally donated it to <laughs> thrift stores. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, mine is still in this little box. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I, I have fantasies about having it framed in a, um, in a shadow box at some point, but mm -hmm. I haven't done it yet. So it's still in its lovely little case. Mm -hmm. I take it every, out every now and then and fondle it. And I put it back. <laughs> Does, Does it wear it around your house? Does it have a ribbon? No, oh, okay. no. And it would weigh a ton if it did. <laughs> I can't imagine. Like, that must be so heavy. I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah, it's like, very heavy. Well, like, Oscars are super heavy. Well, but that's like a statue. Yeah. Yeah, but they're like, I don't, I, because, okay, so um, one of the libraries I worked in, they had an Oscar in the archive, and for, like, staff day, they Did brought it out. Did you get to out. pick it up? I got to hold it. Um, for staff day, they brought it out of the archive, <laughs> and, you know, everyone has their moment, and you, it's, the urge, it really is to, like, say something, like, hold it in one hand and be like, thank you for everything, um, but... You know, your coworkers are looking at you too, so you're just like, it's heavy. <laughs> like, put it back down. Um, no, I get that completely. I still have the little like tiara that I wore in my wedding. Mm. You're supposed to get it restrung into a necklace, but I just wear it when I'm cleaning. For the Credit Scott King, can you tell us a little bit about your experience of accepting that award? It's really lovely that they have a podium that you can lean on. <laughs> um, as your legs are shaking, uh, because I I had given up on ever winning that thing. In fact, <laughs> and uh, it was quite wonderful to not only win it but also the same year have um, talking about Bessie um, receive an honor, mm -hmm. and uh, and then E. B. Lewis get the award for. Uh, for illustration, mm -hmm. um, my friend Gary Schmidt sent me an email saying, you are really greedy. Let somebody else win. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people felt that way that year. <laughs> it was really odd when I, I, of course, had to do it for the Wilder. and Well, that was very interesting because I kept... Um, rewriting and rewriting the speech. I started out imagining somehow that I had more time than I actually had. And, um, and I looked at a couple other people's speeches and saw that the focus was sort of on their whole body of work mm -hmm. uh, in, in some fashion. And so I started writing a piece that was like that, and it was running about, yeah, I don't know, eight pages. And it suddenly occurred to me, wait a minute, how much time do I have? And I looked back at, at my uh, email notes and discovered, well, I didn't have enough time to, to, do, to say that much. 
So I scrapped it and started again. Um, so I ended up with, I think, three computer files uh, of this speech. And when it was time to send it in, I sent one copy to my editor for Hornbook, and it turned out not to be the same as the one that I used when I went to the recording studio. And I didn't know that until I got to the recording studio. And the editor uh, who was directing the audio stopped me after I was a couple of lines in and said, wait a minute, that's not what I have. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. So there was... That, that was really ex an exciting moment. <laughs> I went ahead and, and I taped what I had. And then, you know, when I got home, I tried to figure out, okay, now which one was that? And what did I send to, you know, the publicist and try to get it all, you know, worked out um, beforehand. And I was, I still was just nervous about whether or not the horn book had the same um, <laughs> copy as, uh, yeah as I recorded, and um, what saved me is that uh, the Hornbook loved the speech that I gave, so they didn't care. <laughs> it was okay. It was okay. It's, in fact, um, yeah, they said it was the best speech of the night, so <laughs> that's what like, saved me. <laughs> so it's like collect. It's a collector's versions, yeah. right? You have, you have one, there you, you have go. A and B, and they're both. And they wonderful. weren't entirely different. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't want to give that idea, uh, but there were certain you know elements. <laughs> a little more excitement than I'd planned on. What is your favorite Newberry book? Um, I have a few. Um, Bridge to Terabithia by Catherine Patterson and M.C. Higgins the Great oh, yeah. by Virginia um, Hamilton are my two top faves. Mm -hmm. But I was also thinking today about Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, oh, yeah. Mildred Taylor, and um, Out of the Dust. Well, yeah, Out of the Dust and... Um, William Blake's in. So excited to discover that poetry could actually win the Newberry. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask if you had a preference for the ones written in poetry. <laughs> well, they're definitely high on my list, um, for sure. But um, the, I think the, the first two books that I mentioned, though, were the ones that immediately come to mind because they had, uh, they both had an impact uh, on my work in, in, in a very personal kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, Catherine's work was the first I'd read that honestly and organically uh, wove faith into the story. Mm -hmm. And because faith is so important to me, that was something I was trying to figure out how to do. How do you bring in elements of, of your faith without being preachy? Mm -hmm. um, and, and in a way that it is just natural. And, and her work was a, a great light for me in, in terms of you know, how, how a writer can do that. Um, and Virginia Hamilton's work, really, you know, I'm all about, I, I'm a, a character-driven writer. Mm -hmm. And so I'm all about voice 
authenticity of voice. And, um, well, she just had that hands down. And you really, you really see that in MC Higgins the Great. Mm-hmm. Um, just wonderful characters, just joyful and just kind of leap off the page. They're so well uh, rounded and so grounded and so, yeah. And somehow MC Higgins feels contemporary even now with the issues in the environment and. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. She's a wonder. Thank you so much for talking with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Newberry Tart Podcast, where we spoke with Nikki Grimes. Talk to you next time. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.